Good morning. If uh, you'll turn with me to the passage today on which our teaching is based, it comes from Matthew chapter 6. And I'm going to be reading from verses 9 to 15. It's also printed in your bulletins. This then is how you should pray Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And this is God's word. Now, I'm going to read to you how we really pray. All right, if we're honest with ourselves, this is how we really pray. My genie, who serves my kingdom, hallowed be my name. My kingdom come, my will be done, on earth who cares about heaven. Give me right now my lifelong desires, and forgive me my debts, even though I will never forgive my debtors. And lead me not into suffering, and deliver me from my troubles. For mine is the kingdom, mine is the glory, mine is the power forever and ever. Amen. Amen means, amen means, may your will be done. Over the last hundred years, scholars and psychologists have said that organized religion, the church, is the problem. It's a problem with our world. It's an opiate, a way to suppress the weak. It's a way for immature people to cope with handling the dangers of the world. And so in this enlightened era, which started in the 1850s and on, where science and evidence, empiricism came in, data says that religion is actually going to go away. The reality is it hasn't. It hasn't gone away. In fact, people today are coming back to the church, believe it or not. They're coming back to the church because science, data, our empirical data, what we see, technology in this advanced society, it was supposed to do away with oppression. It was supposed to do away with injustice and greed and poverty. And yet the past hundred years, we've seen the most violent era in the history of the world. And so people are waking up to the reality that science and data and technology, they're not the solution that there must be something underlying the violence and the oppression and the greed and the poverty, something much deeper, that it's not an economic solution, it's not a financial solution, it's not a scientific solution, it's not an educational solution. It's spiritual. And so people today are sensing a need to return. You know that we've, we've lost almost three generations of people leaving the church in droves, Maybe because faulty teaching, maybe because there's a lot of other types of uh, masked forms of cults that disguise themselves as Christianity, whatever it is, we've lost three generations, three whole generations of people to the church. In our Asian communities, we've lost them primarily because the church has become more of a cultural avant-garde, teaching you a particular way to live out faith 
And so people in our generation just did not connect with them. They left. But today, people, they're sensing a need to return to God, a need to connect with God. And that's the meaning of the Lord's Prayer. See, when the disciples of Jesus, by the way, Time Magazine uh, says that the most influential person of all time in the history of the world, I don't even know how you rate that, is Jesus. And Jesus' direct disciples, it's the one time they asked, how do you pray? Jesus gave them the Lord's Prayer. And so we're taking an extended time. We, it's kind of an, a, a series within a series because the series is the Sermon on the Mount. We've been preaching that uh, for the last uh, several months. And we're taking an extended time inside the Sermon on the Mount to focus on the Lord's Prayer. Uh, and today we're covering Thy Will Be Done. Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The mission of God. There are three things we're going to see today. What does that mean? When do you pray it? And where do you get the power and the hope to pray that type of prayer? What does it mean? When do you pray it? And where do you get the power and the hope to pray that type of prayer? First, we're going to look at what does it mean? Jesus says, context, right? Jesus says, God is your father. And uh, that means that you have a, an intimacy with God, a union with God as his sons. But he's also our father in heaven. So he's also the sovereign king, the ruler of heaven. And uh, those two things, they serve as the basis for coming to him. You're coming to God who is our king, who is the ruler of heaven, who is your father. A father wants his children to thrive. A father will want the best things for his children. So with that kind of faith, with that kind of trust, a God who is all-powerful, who can give you anything that you would need, who is also all-wise, who will give you everything you need, that's the context that we pray. All our requests are based on our worship of God. To know the heart of God to know the heart of the Father, to know the heart of the Father who is a king. That's the basis on which we ask for things. And uh, what are we called to base our requests on? We get to, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. In other words, what you're praying is this. May I surrender to your will. May my surrender be submissive, to be under the mission of your will. May I surrender to all the things that you allow to happen to me, even though I don't like that, even though I don't want that, even though it's suffering for me, painful for me, because I adore you, because I worship you, because I trust you. And so you're praying that may my life be centered around your kingdom, may my life be centered around your will, may my life be centered around your mission, not my kingdom, not my will, not my mission, even if it means risking pain, even if it means risking suffering and loss and heartache. Now, keep in mind, this part of the prayer comes before Give us this day our daily bread. So right there, if you're constantly praying that God would bend his will to what you want, then who is God? Who is God here? What Jesus teaches us here is pray that your heart will bend to God's will. Pray that your heart will soften to the mission of God. 
That means you're putting your heart, I mean, because we are so rebellious against that. You're putting your heart into the fiery furnace of God's love and his truth until it becomes softened and moldable so that you can be shaped into the will of God like gold. That's how you become purified. But to surrender to God's will, in a sense, does what? It ruins our will. It counters our will because our will is often so selfish. We desire so many things just for our very short-term, narrow-minded gain. And so what you're really praying is, Father, I'm never at anyone's service but my own. Soften me so that I will be at your service. Now, the problem is we hate being owned by something. We hate debt. We hate submission. Robert Reich, he is the uh, former labor secretary under President Clinton, his first term. He, writes, he wrote a, a pretty important book called The Future of Success. And without going into any quotes about what he writes, there's so many. One of the things he says is that this was, now this book was written in the 1990s. And yet he says, based on labor statistics and what he sees, the way the world is headed, the percentage of self-employed businesses will increase dramatically as technology advances in America, as society becomes more and more advanced. In fact, today, we're seeing pretty much a fulfillment of that prophecy because the majority of, of the United States is in some way, shape, or form. I mean, social media, social selling, we've seen so much more capacity for that for self-branding in a self-branding, individualistic, Western society, self-employment has become almost a norm. And, uh, but nowhere in the Lord's Prayer, nowhere in the Lord's Prayer does Jesus teach us to pray, to seek after things apart from what God desires for His kingdom and His glory and our good. So by nature, just being in a Western civilization, we're going to battle against God's kingdom because there's so much, life is so much about meaning and significance for me, right? So if you seek after things before God's glory, before his mission, before his kingdom, before his righteousness, you're going to have neither of those things. But if you seek God, but if you seek God for himself, if you seek God for his glory, if you seek God because of his beauty, if you seek God because of his kingdom and his mission, you will have both because Jesus is all-sufficient. It's why Jesus says, I want you to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Before you pray, give us this day our daily bread. In fact, the very nature of praying for give us this day our daily bread is in the context of fulfilling the mission and the kingdom and the will of God. It will satisfy God's heart. It will satisfy your heart. That's what that means. Now, when do you pray it? When do you pray it? Jesus is saying, you're going to pray this prayer when you are most hurting for things that you feel you need. Daily bread. Look, what's bread? What's bread? In the Old Testament, bread represented things that satisfy you. But it's also bread was what? You needed it to sustain you to keep you going. Generally, we eat and pursue the things that we believe will sustain us, protect us, satisfy us most. 
So when it feels like you're not getting what you desire and things are not going well, they're not going right, and there's pain and hurt and suffering and loss, that's when you are called to remember, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. See, the last 20 to 30 years, uh, we call that the age of self-discovery in this society. And for a long time, scholars and commentators, they've been recommending to their parents, as you watch your children grow up, let your children define for themselves who they are. Let them define their gifts. Let them pursue how they want to learn, who they want to learn from. In fact, modern progressive education is all about what? Empowering the child to discover for themselves what they want to learn, how they want to learn, who they want to learn from, right? Let the children choose what comes naturally to them. Today, uh, lots of commentators and scholars are saying we've got it wrong, believe it or not. If you actually are up to date in what today's scholars are teaching us about education, they're saying we may be getting it wrong. The trending is now starting to flip. Because uh, leading child scholars today are saying that that thinking is becoming obsolete because the worst thing that you could do as parents is to let a child choose what comes naturally for him. You need to, the whole point of parenting is to discipline and hone your children into learning skills, learning wisdom that are not necessarily going to be natural to them. Because if you only fit what's natural to a child, they become very narrow-minded and it's only going to be succe- they're only going to be successful under particular circumstances. Very narrow situations. You're actually, in the hopes of broadening their view of the world, you're actually making them more narrow in their view of the world and there's lots of gaps. In order to fill those gaps, you as a parent have an obligation and a responsibility to teach them something that goes beyond their natural instincts, to put them in areas where they are not comfortable. Instincts are not enough. They need to learn. They need to learn how to learn. You need to teach them to learn. You need to teach them what it means to be teachable, what it means to be humble, what it means to be faithful. True parenting is what? I mean, any parent would truly understand. I don't care what you studied. We have a lot of teachers in this room. It doesn't matter what you studied. Be a parent. You'll know. True parenting is what? From the beginning. Constant intervention. Constant pushing. Constant countering the child's deep-rooted desires. You guys watch Kevin Hart, right? Kevin Hart says half of parenting is what? Hey, hey, no, hey, I'm trying to imitate Kevin Hart. I can't do it well, right? Hey, hey, no. You don't, you don't even use full sentences, right? That's how it is. That's, that's parenting. It's very hard. But today, you know, we cater. We cater to a kid's wants and his desires. We think good parenting is to empower a child's happiness, to enable a child, what makes them happy. And so when they melt down because they don't get what they want, you're afraid they're going to turn on you in a way. When in reality, today's scholars are saying you need to teach them through disappointments. Yes, it's going to be uncomfortable for them. Yes, it's going to be uncomfortable for you but they need it. If you really love your child, if you really want them to thrive, they need to go through it. Why is it so hard to do that? It's because our hearts are bound up in our children. Their distress becomes your distress, and you don't like discomfort. You don't like disappointment. And so the most selfish thing that you can do is to constantly coddle and try to protect them all the time. 
protect them from every disappointment, to not push them, to not discipline them. And so today, even at a very, very young age, we're constantly reasoning with our children because what? I was disciplined harshly as a child, right? And I'm not saying that that's always good. But we're treating them like adults when they're not adults. It's actually very selfish on the part of our parents today because we're constantly trying to keep uh, ourselves from the fear of losing our child's love. When true parenting is what? You want to see your children thrive at whatever cost. In this violent and crazy society, we need to teach them to learn to navigate the world. So why does Jesus call us to pray, Our Father? Our Father. Because when we are distressed, He's distressed. When we are grieving, He's grieving. And yet, why does He allow us to endure and experience these harsh disappointments at times. And he's perfect. He is perfect and holy. On one hand, he never withholds anything good. On the other hand, he puts us in particular situations where it seems like he's not answering, where it seems like he's absent, where it seems like he's not giving us what we need. Our greatest dreams, our greatest longings and desires in that moment, and he places us in situations that are painful because he's pushing us. Why is he doing that? Because that is what makes you thrive. He knows exactly what he knows, what he knows of each of you. He knows exactly what each of you needs to thrive. That's why. He's building your character to become more like him. That's the last part of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Make me more like you. Lead us not into temptation. Jesus Christ was tempted. Make me more like you. Deliver us from the evil one. Make me more like you. That's what we're praying. That's the last part of the prayer. We're children. Children naturally go against their parents. Children never understand their parents. Now keep in mind, the Lord's Prayer doesn't start with, Jesus doesn't teach us to start with, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. He teaches us to start with our Father. You need to know who you are with respect to God our Father. It always starts with knowing who you are. So many people in our world today, because of the way, again, a lot of it is, uh, it starts from childhood, uh, they're entitled to an explanation for everything. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know how many times I've heard um, parents complaining, you know, my child, um, especially teenagers, I mean, I ran a youth camp for a very long time, right? Teenagers are always, you know, they're always going against their parents. You know, mom, I want to do this. No. Well, why? Well, because I'm your mom. That should be enough. Right? You need to learn to submit to your parents. But children say, if you just explain to me why, I'm sure you've said this, right? If you just explain to me why, then I will agree with you. I will submit. And that is the very anti-definition of submission right? That goes against what submission actually is, because submission is what? To put your mission under the mission, regardless of explanation, regardless of understanding, regardless of the why. I don't know how many times, I mean, I'm a pastor. I don't know how many times people come to me and say, well, if you just explain to me why, then I'll submit to to the authority. If you just explain to me why, then I I get it, I'll understand, I'll I'll go along with it, I'll buy into it, right? 
but that's the very nature of what submission is not. Submission doesn't come, you're not, God is not entitled to explain anything. He is all wise, all power. He's no entitled, he's not obligated to explain anything. We are not entitled to any type of answer. It begins with our Father, trust, faithfulness, teachability, humility. It begins there. Over the course of time, as you grow in wisdom and thrive in the Father's arms, you start to learn why. You don't always learn why about everything. There are things that people in this room have experienced. You may never have an explanation why. And I don't want to be trite about that. Friends, my father was murdered at the age of five. I can't explain to you why. I, I can explain to you shades of the reason why I think why. But I've learned to not ask why in certain circumstances, you see. And, you know, the only reason why I share that is because you don't think that my family understood suffering. You don't think my, I watched my mom growing up suffering alone at times. They're suffering. I've experienced it. We learn. And we understand the love of God and the embrace of God, sometimes in not knowing the answer right away. If you need to know why God does everything before you agree, you're not submitting to the Father. You're actually submitting to your self-capacity to understand, which means that you're actually submitting to yourself, you see? The father says no because he knows best when you're a child. Candy, is, candy for dinner is not good. Rita's before dinner is probably not good. Uh, he knows you need rest. He knows you need bedtime. Because if you don't have bedtime at, right now, you're going to be a mess tomorrow. So when you're needy, when things are not going as you had planned or as you desired, when, you go against, when it goes against the things that you think you need, you need to remember that your father, the all-wise king, the all-powerful king, teaches us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Unless you put yourself in the fire, you will not be molded into the proper image that God desires to shape you so that you will thrive at your best, like a fine-tuned machine in every capacity, the way that you've been designed and built to function. You see that? Otherwise, you're going to snap. You're going to break. You will be bitter and you will be angry. One of my favorite movies, I'm a child of the 80s, right? Uh, one, one of my favorite movies is Amadeus. It was an Oscar winner, uh, best picture. And uh, the movie Amadeus, uh, without really going into all the details of Amadeus, it's about uh, another composer named Salieri, Antonin Salieri. And Salieri is in an asylum, and this priest goes to Salieri because he wants to confess his sins. And he says, I have murdered Mozart. Basically, what he's saying is, I murdered him, uh, I, I manipulated my way into leading to his demise. And he goes into this whole story, but before he goes into the story of how he murdered Mozart, he, you have to understand why he hated Mozart in the first place. Mozart was, a, was a, um, a crude individual, but he was blessed with immense talent. And Salieri grew up in the church, studied under the church, served the king in the courts of the church, wrote and composed amazing pieces of music for the church. And all he ever wanted to do was to glorify God for his kingdom, he says. And so uh, the priest begins, he comes in, and Salieri says, uh, you know, I was a composer. And the priest says, oh, you're, you're a composer. 
what have, you, what have you composed? What have you put together? And he says, have you heard this piece? And he starts to play this piece. And uh, the priest says, no, no, no. Don't think I've heard that before. And uh, he says, okay, well, maybe you heard this one. And he plays this next piece. And uh, the priest says, no, I'm sorry. I, I never heard that one either. And he goes, ah, you must have heard this one. Dun, 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 dun. And the priest starts to sing, oh, I know that one. That's a delightful piece. And he goes, that was Mozart. And he begins to tell the story. He says, all I ever wanted to do was sing to God. He gave me that longing. And then it's like he made me mute. Why? Why would he give me that desire? Why implant this desire and then deny me the talent? But then he meets Mozart, this terrible person of terrible character. And that's when he realizes God is not for him, so he says. He says, you chose for your instrument a boastful, lustful, smutty, infantile boy, and you give me the reward of only the ability to recognize that incarnation. And so because you are unjust and unfair and unkind, I will block you. Friends, unless you put yourself in the fire of disappointment and pain and loss, you will never learn that the responses that the Father wants you to learn so that you become deeper and richer and a wiser person, the wise person that he wants you to be that's like him. Unless you're able to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. You can't pray the rest of that prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. You understand that? That's when you got to pray it. How do you pray it? How do you pray that prayer? I'm going to start by giving our men some advice, okay? Uh, our husbands some advice. If or when, because I see it often uh, when we have, you know, couples gatherings, uh, especially when we first started Metro, if and when you're ever asked, why do you love your wife? I want you to take a moment and stop and think about something. Think before you actually say what you're about to say, because men, they tend to be a bit insensitive. They always say things like, well, she's such a great mother. She's such a great mother. She's, she has a way of just commanding our house. She's very special in the way that she runs our household. Without her, our house would be a mess. She takes such good care of everything in the home. She's so good with our kids. They tend to emphasize gifts, great things. But if that's the real reason why you love your wife, think about it, treating your wife, you're, you're treating them like your employee or an object. You're mainly saying this. I'm going to translate that. Mainly, because you have these great gifts and because you help me to fulfill my real agenda. But let me ask you this. What happens when your wife gets sick then and she can't do that? What happens when your children grow older and they leave the home? What happens then? Then why do you love your wife? Similarly, younger couples, I tend to say, so why do you love your wife? Oh, she is beautiful. She is fine, right? That's what they say. She has a wonderful figure. Well, they would never say that, right? But they say, she's beautiful. That's what they're really saying. You're still emphasizing gifts. 
I'm going to teach you how to answer, okay? You need to get into her heart, into her deepest desires and longings. Why? Because your wife is not an object that was created for you, for your agenda or your purpose or your mission. When two people who connect well, serve well, serve each other well, love each other well, and love others well, people say, look at those two. They are made for each other. That's what they say. They're made for each other. It's not like a laptop, right? We say, man, I love this laptop. It takes care of everything. It's incredibly powerful. It's very fast, right? But now look at God. True love says what? How are we called to adore and worship God? We've been leading throughout the series to what? To say that worship is coming to God not for more things, but coming to God for more of God. And so you're called to worship. The word of encouragement. If you look at the last two or three of them, it's all about what? The adoration and praise and worship of God, not for the things that he does for you, but because of who he is. Because of his amazing beauty. To gaze on the beauty and power and majestic kingliness of God and to raise him up and say, I just want more of you in my life. That's what I need. It will be sufficient for all of my life if that's what I have. I love you because I love you. Look at how God loves us. Because we are so lovable? No. He says, I love you because I love you. I've bound myself in you so that if you fail, then I have failed. That's what he says. Not because of what you can give me, not because of what you bring to the table, not because of your successes. He says, your successes are my successes. Your failures are my failures. So I've wrapped my life. I've bound. I've chosen to do this. I didn't have to do this. I've chosen to bound myself in you. I love the fact that you're gifted, but I love you because I love you, not because of what you bring to the table. And if that's how we should be looking at our spouses, how much more should we be looking at the great and infinite and transcendent God? True love doesn't ask for service. True love serves. True love never looks to receive. True love gives. True love never complains about the suffering that the one we love puts us through. Rather, you would rather suffer in their place. And so if you pray, if you're praying to God, and this is how we normally pray to God, my wish is your command. Please fulfill the things that I desire. Then you don't love God for who he is. You're just coming to God for things. The first priority is for you to know his heart, to get into his heart, to get into his longings, to get into his desires. That's his mission. And to trust that he is good and righteous. The Apostle Paul writes, love always protects, love always trusts, love always hopes, love always perseveres. Look at the Apostle Paul, right? Because that's what he writes. That's an amazing thing if you know the Apostle Paul and the trajectory of his life. Because a lot of us, if you really study the Apostle Paul, we're like the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul spent most of his life living as a righteous person. He was a Pharisee, and although that has a negative connotation in our society today in the church, to be a Pharisee in those days was to be very well respected, probably wealthy. You were most likely a professional, 
and you lived a godly life. You had given yourself to living a godly life. I mean, who wouldn't want to live in the neighborhood of a Pharisee? But the reason why Paul pursued these things was what? That's how I get approval. That's how I get a sense of worth. That's how I feel good about myself. To be able to look down on certain people because they cannot live, they cannot measure up to the standards that you have exceeded in your life, that makes you feel pretty good. That makes you, you are rising above even the other religious people in your synagogue. But when this small group of people in the synagogue start to convert to Christianity, it threatened that sense of approval. Because now his sense of approval is being challenged. The very basis of where he finds approval is being challenged. Because Christians live by grace alone. It's not on my record. It's not on my merit. It's on the merit of Christ and his record. So all of a sudden, Paul, who's lived his entire life, a godly and righteous man, to get a sense of approval, that sense of approval is being attacked and challenged implicitly. And so Paul's living by his own gifts He's living by his own righteousness and works as a way of a sense of uh, a getting worth. And now he's getting anxious because he's always anxious. That's why he worked so hard. That's why we're always working so hard. If it's not to please your boss, it's to please somebody in the church or to please your parents. You're always living to please somebody because that is how you get a sense of approval from God. It's worth the approval of God in a sense. And so Paul's anxious, and he's angry. He becomes murderous, so discontent, so bitter, to the point where he authorizes the death of Stephen as a martyr. All this time he's battling Christians. One day he's on the road to Damascus. He was actually on the road to persecute Christians. And there he encounters the living Jesus. He falls to his knees, and there he realized all his life, in his pursuit of righteousness, I imagine Paul to be a man who lacks tremendous empathy. I mean, he's just going to be on a warpath. His agenda, callous, cold, everything's God's will. Cold and callous, right? And yet Jesus says, Saul, why do you persecute me? You are persecuting me. That his life of goodness was a way of battling Jesus. His life of righteousness was a way of battling God. And that blinded, he was blinded by the beauty of God, blinded by the glory of God. His life goes dark all of a sudden. He realized there all his life, he was seeing that he was honoring God and pursuing that, and yet he wasn't honoring God. All his gifts, all his talent, all his righteousness, it amounted to nothing. It was worthless because he came before the real God. He, became, he came before Jesus Christ. Now he's seeing all power, all glory, and it was blinding him. And yet, now he realizes what he was doing against God, against Jesus. And it humbled him, completely broke him. Especially because seeing the living Jesus, he realized that even though he was living in the name of God, he was actually living for himself. He was really living for his pursuit of approval. The respect of people, the status that he had. And he was serving God. Serving God was really just a way of getting those things. He was coming to God for himself. He was coming to God to get things. And there Jesus gives Saul a new name. And that new name represents a new life. A whole new life. 
the living Jesus, the power of Jesus, the glory of Jesus, called him out of his sin and his selfishness. Life is not about getting things from God. By the way, when you live a self-righteous life, what you're really saying is, because I've lived this way, God in his way kind of owes me now. It's kind of a transactional relationship. You're coming to God as a king, religious, right? But a person like that will never be able to come to God as his father. You see that? The God he was really serving was the God of approval, seeking approval. But Jesus spared him, called him to serve him, and he realized that the grace of God in Jesus alone was enough. And so this angry and bitter and anxious person, murderous because of his pride, served Jesus and built the foundations of the church. And Philippians chapter 4, which he was writing pretty much towards the end of his life, he says what? I've learned what it means to be content in all things. Why? Because Christ is all-sufficient, all he needs. And he says, I can do all things in Christ. I can do all things in Christ. By saying, thy kingdom come, what you're saying is, I just want you to come. I want more of you in me, around me, in the church, in our city, in our world. Seeing that God merely wants all of you. Until you see that, you will not have peace. If you're coming to God for peace, you will not have peace nor God. If you come to God for God, for his kingdom, for his glory, for his mission, for his will, you will have both. If you come to God for freedom, you will neither have freedom nor God. You will be enslaved by other desires in your life. Those desires may not be bad necessarily in the beginning, but you will be enslaved to your children. You'll be enslaved to your spouse. You'll be enslaved by your status or reputation, maybe your social circles, whatever it is, approval-seeking, whatever it is, all those desires. It doesn't have to be just money, right? Every one of us here, blinded, controlled by something. What it's, True freedom is not having no master. True freedom is having the right master, Right? Until you surrender, until you submit to the kingdom of God, there will be no victory. I think it was Tim Keller who said that the hardest thing to give is in. Until you give in, you're not going to receive what you need. To receive beyond what you pray for, because most of the time we pray very short-sighted prayers. Until you submit, you're not going to receive beyond what God has been waiting all your life to hear you pray. Are you able to pray, Father, you are all I need? Are you able to pray, if I have nothing else in the world, but I have Jesus, that's actually enough? Can your prayer shift from, this is what I want, God, to you are all I want? Because look at Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ the triumphal entry, he enters back into Jerusalem. And uh, we call that Palm Sunday. He enters back into Jerusalem. And he enters like a king. But as he approached the city, he didn't sit on a throne. He wept over Jerusalem. Because of Jerusalem's sin, he wept over Jerusalem. 
And he says, if you only knew what's going to happen, if you only knew. He wept over Jerusalem and the destruction that they would face. And as he approached the city, as he approached the city, he wept over it. And then in the garden of Gethsemane on the night before he died, look at Jesus. What does he do? He prays. He prays. He's staring into the fiery furnace, his own fiery furnace now, hell. Because in that moment, he says, I'm overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Why? Because in that moment, he was starting to sense and experience all that he would endure for what? For God's kingdom. All that he would endure. Separation from God. The real fiery furnace of hell for the penalty of our sins. And what does he do? Does he say, God, this is what I want, and this is what I want. I'm doing this for you. you got to do this for me. That's not what he prays. He prays what? He says, God, I don't want this. Let this cup pass from me. The cup he's talking about is the cup of God's wrath. But then he says, not my will. Thy will be done. Not at the risk of pain and suffering and loss and death and humiliation, but at the cost, at the certainty of of pain and suffering and loss and death and humiliation. And on the cross, what did he do? Did he pray? Jesus Christ prayed, didn't he? Psalm 22 is a prayer. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, all I wanted is you. I am praying for more of you. And yet you have become absent from me. You have left me. You have rejected me. And so I'm burning up in the fire of God's wrath, in the fiery furnace, drinking the cup of God's wrath, and I'm suffering. I'm doing your will. I'm doing your will, and I'm doing it for the kingdom. You know what Psalm 22 is? He doesn't begin with, my father, my father. He prays, my God, my God. It's the one time. You know, when, he, when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, it's the one time he doesn't address God as his father. And yet, he's still praising God. Verse 5, Psalm 22, you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. He's literally reciting this prayer as he's dying on the cross. It's a prayer of suffering, Psalm 22, and yet it As it ends, it says this, I will declare your name. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. They will proclaim your righteousness. In other words, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. To the end, to his death, Jesus Christ is still worshiping God, still honoring God, still loving God, still desiring God, still desiring the mission of God to be extended, the kingdom of God to be advanced. On the cross, he's still thinking about the kingdom, and he's praying, Father, forgive them, he says. Forgive them. That's why we can pray, by the way. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. He's thinking about the mission of God. On the cross, Jesus says, it is finished. In other words, the mission is accomplished. All about the kingdom. Today, are you suffering in the fire? Are you, con- you know, we are constantly wrestling with God over who has control over our lives. The Apostle Paul figuratively wrestled with God all his life. In the Old Testament, in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, Jacob, one of the patriarchs, one of the well- most well-known figures in Old Testament history, Jacob literally was wrestling God, literally wrestled God for the blessing. But it wasn't until Jacob... The Apostle Paul, 
all of Jesus' disciples, his church. It, is, it isn't until they surrendered that they and we would experience real worth, real blessing. Why? If you think Jesus, if you look at Jesus loving us so much, a father wanting his children to thrive at any cost, what did it cost the father? It costed his own son's death. That's the love of the father for you, for you. Jesus Christ loved his people so much he was willing to die for them. That's, there's the validation that you need. There's the approval that we need. You were the mission of God. You were the mission of Christ. And when you see that, you will make him your mission. You are the treasure of God. You are the treasure of Christ. When you see that, God will become your treasure. Jesus Christ will become your treasure. That's how we pray in adoration, even in the midst of suffering, in a way that births, bursts, and births joy. Because Jesus Christ surrendered to the death, that we have victory in him. That's how we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Because Jesus Christ said it under the fire, the ultimate fire, you can say it in any furnace that you experience in your life. Friends, Metro, I got to say, next to marrying my wife, Metro is probably one of the best things I've ever experienced. You know, I can say that in all honesty. But it was also one of the worst things to ever happen to me in my life. My life was a lot more comfortable without Metro. You know, my life was a lot more comfortable. My life was a lot more simple. It was a lot easier. It was a lot wealthier without Metro. You can, I've been through multiple miscarriages. My wife and I have multiple children, you know, lost. Uh, that seven-year period that Metro has been around has been one of the most trying experiences of my life. I've experienced ridicule from people that do not know me, criticism from people I've never met, uh, Betrayal of good friends. Um, the loss of children. I've seen family members suffering. Many furnaces. Many furnaces. So let me teach you and tell you as a brother today. Because Jesus experienced a fiery furnace for you, you can certainly do it for him. He gives you all power to do it, and you will. Will you? Will you pray that prayer? I dare you to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Let's pray.